Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. It's a minute to midnight in the back streets of Leeds. It's Saturday night and the nightlife of the city is drawing to a close. Normally, the police at this time will be dealing with drunks and rowdies. But in recent months, it's become a time they've learned to dread. It's the 1970s. The Bee Gees and Rod Stewart are dominating the charts. Space hoppers are everywhere. And Jaws becomes the first ever summer blockbuster. But something else is making headlines too. Between now and dawn, a woman could be killed by a vicious murderer whose reign of terror has dubbed him a second Jack the Ripper. Ripper victim number one, 28-year-old divorcee Wilma McCann. A couple of months later, the body of a woman was found at the rear of a bakery. We know now that we are definitely looking for a man who originated in the northeast. He's struck six times now in nearly two years. He would be perfectly normal probably a meek, mild man holding down a reasonable job. Five new men were drafted in to lead Britain's biggest ever manhunt following the frenzy of publicity after the Ripper's 13th killing. The case of Peter Sutcliffe, or the Yorkshire Ripper, as the newspapers nicknamed him, has become infamous. For the attacks themselves, for the length of Sutcliffe's terrifying five-year reign of terror, and for the many failings in the police response. A sorry saga marred by racism, sexism, and the number of painful missed opportunities. But there's one Ripper story that has never been told before. I suddenly noticed that there was a man sitting diagonally to me on a low front garden wall. And the moment he looked up at me and our eyes met, I had this absolute terror. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Josh Glancy. Today, the untold story of the woman who escaped the Yorkshire Ripper. I'm Michael Bilton, uh, the author of Wicked Beyond Belief, The Hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper. I was a journalist for The Sunday Times in the late 1970s and early 80s. And so how was it that you came across this previously untold story? In September 2020, I was a member of the International Investigative Journalist Group, and I got an email from Ruth Shaw, and she explained what had happened to her 
My name's Ruth Shaw. I'm now in my 60s, but nearly 45 years ago, I was a young student at the University of Bradford. And this incident happened to me, this encounter with the Yorkshire Ripper, at the end of my first year during the holidays in 1979. But I had actually been given a very, very strong message by the police that my encounter and my witness testimony had no real significance. So I sort of taught myself to live alongside the feelings until I watched uh, this three-part documentary about the Yorkshire Ripper. And for the first time ever, the feelings re-arose. A few days later, I remembered I'd had a book, which was Michael's book, Wicked Beyond Belief. So that night when I couldn't sleep, I ran and found the book, saw who the author was and decided to shoot off my story to him at one o'clock in the morning. And I really didn't expect any result from it. And four o'clock the next afternoon, the phone rang and it was Michael. And so, Ruth, before we get to the story about what actually happened for you with, with Peter Sutcliffe, set the scene for us. It's mid-July 1979. How old are you then and what are you actually doing? Well, I was 23. I'd stayed on after the end of the first year into the holidays because a few friends from the university and myself were running a voluntary project to bring children over from the Troubles in Northern Ireland for some respite in Bradford. We had a wonderful holiday with them. And then the project finished. And my boyfriend at the time, Howard Jevons, he came up to stay with me for a few days in Bradford. And one evening, we went to a student pub and we spent the evening there having a couple of drinks with friends. And Ruth, at that time, the Yorkshire Ripper had been in the news for quite a while at that point. Was it something you were aware of that you or your friends would ever talk about? Were you worried ever when you went out or was it just not something that you felt was relevant to you at that moment? It's something we couldn't be unaware of. We were immersed in the news and we were talking about it avidly. But frankly, we were being programmed, if you like, the way the police had begun to program themselves to believe their hypothesis that the Yorkshire Ripper was targeting prostitutes in prostitute areas. He could have a member of his family who has been in prostitution and he's carried that, as it were, chip on his shoulders all his life. Or it could be that he himself has suffered at the hands of a prostitute, um, either ridiculed or robbed or or something of the sort, and that this is his way of, of, of getting back at these girls. So we, as students, We simply didn't worry so much. If we were around the university area, which was about three miles from the red light district in Bradford, we were all very relaxed. And I found myself wandering not only past alleyways, but through them. Mm. Maybe one or two in the morning, you know, from friends to friends and after bars were closing and curry houses and so on. Everybody walked back through the alleyways. So you're at the pub that evening in the summer of 1979 and you're with your boyfriend, Howard, you're having a quiet drink. Uh, What happens next? 
being young lovers, uh, we had a lover's tiff. And I guess around 10.15, we were in quite a tizzy with each other and we left the pub. It was very, very quiet on the street outside and we couldn't resolve our differences and basically stormed off on each other. I walked down the road towards the university and as I neared the university, a car started curb crawling next to me, drew up alongside, asked if I'd like a lift and it spooked me, frankly. This was now nearing half past 10, so I shooed him away, crossed the road and instinctively began to walk up towards the pub again uh, to rejoin my friends there for safety. Um, As I walked up the road, I had to cross a rather wide side road called Ash Grove. I suddenly noticed that there was a man sitting diagonally to me on the low front garden wall, not near the bus stop. He was just sitting on a wall and I didn't feel in the slightest threatened. I was about to continue crossing and walk past him when he looked up at me. And the moment he looked up at me and our eyes met, I had this absolute terror and a total sense that he was a threat and really evil. His eyes bored holes through me and were so intense and so malevolent My heart practically stopped and my legs began to feel like I was walking through mud. And my instinct said, flee, just flee. And I felt I was running for my life. I flew, I flew across the other side of Ashgrove that I'd just walked from, flew down the hill as fast as my very fast little legs at that stage could carry me. And as I was running, I remember thinking eventually, look, I've run a long way. I can't hear him behind me. I can afford to slow down. And as I slowed down, I just checked over my shoulder. And there he was. He was right behind me. So he caught up with me and closed in on me silently. And we were stood looking at each other. Our eyes had locked together. And for the only time in my life, I screamed for my life and I screamed, Howard. I heard footsteps behind me. I turned, it was my boyfriend, flew into his arms, shaking, and just kept saying, get him off me, get him off me, please, get him off me. And my boyfriend said, who? He'd disappeared. And there was only one place that he could have gone where we couldn't see him. The road was brightly lit, so he had to have gone and hidden in Backash Grove. Ruth, I, I'm not sure I'll uh, I'll ever forget your description of, of, of staring into his eyes. Um, we'll, we'll come back to what happened next, sort of very much a chapter two to that story. But Michael, first of all, could you just take us back to that moment in history? Because the north of England in particular was in a real ferment about the Ripper case. You were Northern correspondent for the Sunday Times. It was an extraordinary moment in British history, wasn't it? 
the killing spree of Peter Sutcliffe lasted five years. Most of the early victims had been sex workers in red light areas. And then a young girl was killed, 16-year-old girl was killed. As the murders increased in the north of England, the police investigation got larger and larger and larger. The numbers of houses they knocked out, the numbers of men they were talking to, were in the thousands. The weight of the material they had in the incident room, the paperwork weighed about four tons, and they had to move it from the centre of the incident room to the external walls of the incident room to stop the floor caving in. But the killings went on, and they didn't seem to be capable of capturing this man. And it was a form of terrorism for women. Sutcliffe was operating, as you say, on both sides of the Pennines. So which cities are we talking about? Bradford, obviously, Leeds, Manchester. This again become part of the terror because he broadened out his areas. You know, he would murder several women in Leeds. Then he would move on to Bradford. Then, when he thought the police might be keeping watch on areas, he went across the Pennines to Manchester, then to Halifax, then to Huddersfield. And Michael, where did the name Yorkshire Ripper come from? The newspapers, um, the word Ripper was used after about the third murder because they were getting some information about what happened to the victims. Some of them had gone through very, very serious brain injuries because they were hit about the head with a hammer, not once, in some case several times. But then one of the newspapers described him as the Yorkshire Ripper to separate him out from that killer in London in the 1880s. And I think it's fair to say that this was one of the biggest manhunts Britain has ever seen. There was criticism, wasn't there, of the police for for not listening to some women who came forward uh, and for, I mean, they interviewed the Ripper several times without arresting him. Sutcliffe's car alone was spotted 60 times. After three separate sightings, he was taken in for questioning. That meant he'd been interviewed nine times by the police. So there, there was a sense that they, they missed opportunities to, to hear evidence or to, to catch him along the way, wasn't there? Most definitely, the criticism started to come towards the end. By then, the hostility towards the police was getting huge. Lots of students went out protesting because they were being told, don't go out at night. And they found this an absolutely disgraceful thing for the police to do. The hostility from the press and from various organisations and the police committee was extremely strong. And what they found subsequently was that there were a whole load of photo fits there by women who had survived with the exact description. I mean, when you put Peter Sutcliffe's photo beside them, you were looking at Peter Sutcliffe. So, Ruth, we now know a lot more about who this man was and the crimes he committed. So let's, let's take you back to that night in Bradford where we left you. And, and you'd been approached and chased by this man, but thankfully your boyfriend had reappeared uh, and the man who, who we firmly believe was Peter Sutcliffe then disappeared. Um, you're standing in the street, you're in a state of distress. What happens next? I was shaken and um, we realised where he must have run to. 
as I've mentioned, because there was no other place. So backing onto the backs of the Victorian houses, there's a parallel back alleyway called Backash Grove, a sort of unmade, cobbly, potholy road, very dark, and it has a lot of backyards with higher walls. You can't see into the yards. We ran to the mouth of Backash Grove. My boyfriend actually went into it. He said, I'm going to find him. And I stood at the mouth of the alleyway. And then he came running back out and said, it's too dark. It feels a bit weird. So we stood with our eyes fixed to the alley to see if there was any movement. And there was no movement. He wasn't walking or running through the alley itself. He must be crouching in one of the backyards. And we were sort of rather stuck. We didn't know what to do because there were no mobile phones. We didn't want to leave the spot and let him go because although neither of us had connected him to the Ripper, because, of course, we all knew that the Ripper was targeting prostitutes because we'd all been instructed so uh, for a long time, I did feel very strongly this man is a very dangerous man. And I kept saying to my boyfriend, if he'd raped me, I would have got off lightly. I'm sure he's going to kill me. He felt murderous. So we were scratching our heads, wondering when all of a sudden a black police van started coming up the road. And Howard leapt out, flagged it down. I was still watching the alley and there was still no movement. I told them the story and asked them to please, please go down Backash Grove where this pursuer was obviously hiding in a backyard. Well, they weren't at all interested. They put their headlights on full beam, raced down the back alley, and if you put your headlights on full beam, the surrounding area becomes even darker. You could see nothing. And at that point, we started asking them very politely, please, please, would you mind stopping and searching the backyards on foot? He's in here somewhere. They almost had a bit of a sort of a chuckle, didn't take it seriously. And at one stage, one of the officers said to me, look, even if we got out and found him, there's nothing we could lay on him because he didn't lay a finger on you. I felt completely patronised and dismissed as a human being and as a woman and as a witness. And frankly, I knew it was, it was complete nonsense. They had been conducting this investigation They'd been interviewing men walking along the street who might have borne a resemblance. They'd been interviewing men in nightclubs at bus stops. They'd been interviewing students at my university with cars, you name it. Good morning, sir. It's just a check. Is this your vehicle, please? Can you tell me the registered number of it, please? Uh -huh. And it's your vehicle, sir. Have you got your driving license, have you? So in the context of this investigation, the fact that this man hadn't laid a finger on me because I'd been blessed enough to escape, you know, it didn't appear rational. So I felt very disregarded and I was very, very anxious about what might happen if they let him go. You know, in the context of 
the febrile press coverage, the huge manhunt that's going on, it is quite remarkable that they didn't think to at least get out the car and, and double check. Um, Michael, after this encounter Ruth had, when did Sutcliffe next attack? Seven weeks after Ruth went through her experience, a young girl at Bradford University called Barbara Leach had gone out on a Sunday night with some of her fellow students and uh, they stayed behind when the pub closed and had a few private drinks with the landlord and then she walked home. She didn't arrive back at the student lodgings and the next day a massive search was done. People, uh, police feared the ripper had struck again and he had. And her body was found down the little lane that Ruth had driven with the police. The narrow back alleys around Bradford's university were sealed off tonight as police made a detailed search of the area. The body was found by a patrolling officer, well hidden behind a low stone wall at the back of a large terraced house in the city's bedsit area. There was a recess, and in one of those, uh, owners of the house had a little wall built, and they put their dustbins behind that, and that's where Barbara Leach's body was found. Uh, she was literally yards from where the police van was. I mm. think he was probably hiding there. Coming up, Ruth is finally called in to give her statement to police, but they have absolutely no record of her encounter. That's in just a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So Barbara Leach is murdered in September 1979, Ruth. And that's just seven weeks after your encounter. And it's exactly in the spot where you and the police were looking for the man who approached you. So where are you when you hear this news and how does it affect you? I was temporarily staying back home with my mother in London just for a couple of weeks before being due to return to university. And the newspaper came through the letterbox that morning and bore the news of Barbara Leach's murder. And she'd been dressed in the same kind of gear as I had, a white granddad shirt or something and 
pair of jeans. She had dark hair like me. And she'd been murdered, discovered in Backash Grove. And I realized, oh my gosh, it might be the Ripper that I escaped. He's gone back. He's gone back to the same location. And at the moment, I realized I might have escaped the Yorkshire Ripper and how closely, within a few feet of him being able to grab me, I really felt traumatized. And I ran to our bathroom and found myself retching over the sink. But gradually, during the morning, I began to think, well, you know, it can't have been him, actually, because the police haven't contacted me. They'll know about what happened that night. If they think there's a connection, they'll ring me. They didn't ring. Instead, a friend of mine, he knew what had happened and continuously rang me, imploring me to ring Bradford Police Station. I was saying, it's not necessary. They'll ring me if they need to speak to me. However, almost to keep him quiet, by the end of the evening, I rang up to Bradford and I was told there was no report of my encounter whatsoever. But they did say, we'd like you and your boyfriend to come up tomorrow and we'd like to take statements from you. So back we went to Bradford in a rush. We were with the police in the incident room for two whole days. There were two detectives talking to me. The more senior, he kept saying, from the detailed statements they'd taken from me, we think it's him, we think it's him. And he was passionate about that hypothesis. So when they let us go, the end of two days, I fully assumed that they'd be in touch with me and never heard another thing. So therein lay the messages. For the first time, my encounter with the beat constables and the second time with the detective team, this isn't so big a deal. It's not important to us. There's a man attacking and killing women across Yorkshire and Manchester for f- over five years, from 1975 to 1980. Given the police and their various misdirections, how was the Ripper eventually caught? He knew that the areas in Leeds and in the cities were being monitored very closely by the police, and he drove down to Sheffield and went to the right red light area. He tried to pick up a couple of sex workers, and that didn't work. And eventually he did get a woman, and he drove off to a quiet area of the city. Now, a couple of policemen were patrolling that area. There was a very experienced police sergeant trying to tutor a young trainee police officer. And they went up and knocked on the window and asked uh, the man, you know, who's this? And he said, well, she's my girlfriend. And said, well, what's her name? And he stopped and said, well, I'm not sure. I've only known her a little while. And with that they realised that he had got a sex worker in the car and that she was committing a criminal offence. Well, at that point, the guy suddenly said that he wanted to go to the loo. So they turned their backs and let him go off and have a pee. And when they came back, they took him down to the local police station and he was held there. 
The police officers who arrested him went back on duty in the evening and the police sergeant, it suddenly occurred to him that he, when he went often went to the loo, that he may have actually done something devastating. And he drove up there with another officer and with a torch, they searched around the area and behind a, a low, low wall, they found a hammer and then a knife. And then they knew that they had actually caught the Yorkshire Ripper. And Ruth, when, when he was caught, how did you find out and what, what was your experience in that moment? When he was caught, I was back in London, living in a shared house with friends there. And it was the biggest relief. But the other feelings remained. My anger about the police treatment. I felt they'd let down for the next victims. I thought they'd let me down and was really dismayed about that treatment. And Ruth, when, when you saw, obviously when the Ripper was arrested, the country learned his name and his face. When did you know for sure that Peter Sutcliffe was, was the man who'd followed you that night in Bradford? Well, I knew for sure when the pictures were published in the newspaper. I was very, very anxious about seeing the pictures alone because I didn't know what I was going to face. So we, Howard and I, had made a plan that uh, I'd go up overnight and we would have a look at the pictures when they were released. We'd see them together. And that's what happened. So the very first one they released, I believe, was his wedding picture. And I was saying to Howard, it's very odd because... The features very, very, very similar. The hair similar, facial hair similar, but his face is too thin. I remember him having a round, wide face. So I wasn't 100% convinced, but that was a very uncharacteristic picture. All the pictures that followed were a kind of a full frontal picture, and every single one of them, it was the man that had chased me, absolutely. So obviously an enormous sense of relief along with many other emotions for you Ruth but Michael after Ruth was approached that night in Bradford how many more women did Peter Sutcliffe attack and how many more victims were there he attacked seven more women three of those were murdered four survived so in total we know that there are about 34 35 women that he attacked 13 of whom were murdered and there were 23 children who were made motherless, which for me is a terrible thing. What was Peter Sutcliffe eventually convicted of? He was convicted of 13 murders and seven attempted murders, but the police had not really focused on quite a lot of women who had been attacked in the same way as those women who had been either murdered or he'd attempted to murder them. Obviously, he was convicted and given a life sentence. Where is he now? Peter Sutcliffe's been dead for nearly three years. He died aged 74, having spent 40 years in very tight custody. Subsequently, when COVID broke out, he caught COVID and then died in a local hospital on the 13th of November. 2020. Ruth, 
when you hear about all the many women who were affected, a number of whom after your encounter, how does that make you feel? I feel dismayed that that could have been prevented. They failed to bring Sutcliffe in many, many, many times. But I would hope that the publicity around this now might encourage women who've had similar experiences to come forward now and seek the help and reveal their testimonies. So I think it's terribly important. We're still dealing with this issue, aren't we, Ruth, of of women feeling like they don't have the confidence to come forward, feeling like they won't be listened to, and in some cases, not being listened to. Oh, very, very much so. You know, I think some of the main lessons for for me that I'd love to be learnt by the police, first of all, the dangers of developing fixed ideas and then closing one's mind to all the available evidence. Another is that there really needs to be a serious review within the force about the current and previous cultural attitudes and practice as regards women because women's voices really don't appear to have been taken as seriously as they should be and need to be. And maybe, maybe, maybe that would prevent some further tragedies in the future. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Josh Glancy, and my extraordinary guests, Ruth Shaw and Michael Bilton, former Sunday Times journalist and author of Wicked Beyond Belief, The Hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper. That book has been adapted into a seven-part TV series for ITV, which is out now on Mondays at nine o'clock. The producer for this podcast was Olivia Case. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by the peerless David Crackles. If you have a story you think we should be covering, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Thanks for listening and see you again soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.